Welcome to Dig This, a podcast about using archaeology, heritage, and business to do some good in this world. I'm Jenny. And I'm Amanda. Join us in a guest or two as we reevaluate and decolonize our work, our relationships, and our values. We're recording from the unceded territory of the Shimshan Nation, the Kitsilis people in Terrace, BC and also recording from Bowser, BC. In the beautiful unceded territory of the Qualicum First Nation. Good morning, Jenny. Hi, Amanda, how are you? I'm having a case of the Mondays, I think. <laughs> it's only, and it's Tuesday. I'm having a case of the Fridays and it's only Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I managed to make it here though. I was really wondering this morning if I should cancel. I was delighted to get your text because I just thought it was a half an hour difference. <laughs> oh no. And also, um, I'm not impressed with the daylight savings times right now because my children are waking up an hour earlier. So I'm up at five every morning right now. Yeah, someone forgot to explain the time change to my dog as well. Mm. Maisie. So, I've been up since 5.30. Yeah, And what we thought was going to be a smooth morning, uh, although I do have one sick child. I think I told you about that yesterday. Yeah, I'm alone. So we spent four hours at the ER yesterday just because we don't have a walk-in clinic in town anymore. So we just went in for a simple, like, we need a prescription for his, um, his asthma inhaler. And man, it's busy down there. <laughs> I'm really glad I don't work in emergency. Holy, they had COVID patients, they had car accidents, they had like, you name it. So mm. uh, we were there for quite a while. Then we finally got home last night and they also did a COVID test on him because he does have a sore throat. Right. So I don't think he has COVID, but it's good to test. And then this morning we were getting Jackson ready for school because it's picture day. Mm. And He's like, oh, my head's itchy again. I'm like, oh no. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We just got another lice notice as well. And I was like, yeah. oh my God, we already buzzed the children's hair. We luckily still had some of the treatment. So we had to do an emergency bath, shower, blow dry this morning. <laughs> and I got him off to school. So yeah, we'll have to treat the rest of the house later. But that's how my day is going. How's your day? Uh, literally, I was I was telling the rest of the team this this morning, but literally had to drive around down power lines to get oh, no. the, to get Jasper to school, and um and one of the other moms was there and and she was saying, oh my goodness, I really hope our power is on at home. And I said I would take no power at home if it meant keeping the power on at the school, <laughs> just so I can I can drop my kids off. Isn't that, isn't that terrible? And then this weekend we had Parenting 101 because <laughs> Jasper and Eddie were in Home Depot with Tony on Saturday and they came out into the parking lot and Eddie triumphantly uh, showed the lollipop that he had shoplifted. Oh. <laughs> and then, oh and no. Jasper, Jasper just sat there quietly. And so Tony brought Eddie back inside and they went and talked to the cashier and gave it back and, you know, made it kind of a teaching moment. And then 
24 hours later, we discovered Jasper had taken the same lollipop and was hiding it at home and let, oh, his, younger, let his younger brother take the heat. So oh, uh, we had to drive all the way back to Home Depot with our 75 cents in our pocket, and pay for it. <laughs> oh. But then we found a new brew pub. So then we went there and played um, Lion King matching. Yeah, so it was great. So, so at any rate, doing the podcast today is a bit of a break from all of the real life that's happening. Yes, I agree. I was actually really looking forward to this session because it's been a while since we did a recording. Hmm. And yeah, we've got a guest today. Yeah, we have a guest that we're really, really excited about. I'm a big fan of Bob Muckles, and I'm so glad that he's able to uh, join us. Bob, Amanda, Amanda, Bob. Welcome, Bob. <laughs> Thank you. Nice to meet you, Amanda. <laughs> nice to meet you over Zoom in a podcast. How are you doing, Bob? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Getting a late start to my day today, but uh, I'm doing good. Where are you joining us from? I am joining you from my home office in uh, Pitt Meadows, which is the uh, territory of the Casey Nation in the uh, Fraser Valley. So I'm Bob Muckall. The uh, I've been in archaeology in British Columbia for a very long time. I grew up in British Columbia and uh, wasn't really looking to make a career in archaeology. It just sort of happened to me by various circumstances. Since 1989, I've been based at uh, Capilano University in North Vancouver. Well, it's a university for about the last 10 years or so. Before that, it was a college. I, before that, I had uh, full-time work with a number of First Nations in the uh, interior of the province, primarily. I did that for a number of years. That was my, my full-time work. And before that, I had my own small CRM company. Over the last few decades, I've uh, mixed my, my teaching with uh, field work when I can by running an archaeology field school through Capilano University. Uh, the first field season occurred in 2000, and the last one was in 2019. Mm -hmm. And since that time, I've dabbled in a number of other projects, including trying to get permission to excavate what's probably the world's oldest public skateboard park, and uh, more recently, I've done some work on uh, the archaeology of COVID in Metro Vancouver. And I'm currently looking around to see some other research projects that I might do. And I also write a lot of books. So there's a lot of things that you brought up there in your very, you know, your very extensive introduction. But I want to go back to a couple of things. And I was very intrigued when you said that archaeology sort of happened to you because we hear that from a lot of archaeologists. And so what does that mean? How did how did it happen to you? Where did where did young Bob Muckle think he was headed? Uh, young Bob Muckle thought he was not headed for any kind of career that would require a university uh, education. I'm a first generation uh, university graduate. I was just, you know, out of, out of high school, it didn't even occur to me to go to university. And I, I got good jobs. It was a long time ago, so it was possible to get good jobs with good money without a university education. But I used to travel a lot. And, and a lot of people that I met, you know, encouraged me to go to university because I had that opportunity. So I, I, after a few years of high school and, you know, extensive traveling, I decided to go back to university. And my goal was simply to get a BA. And I, I found archaeology and I found it interesting. Uh, no ambition to make it a career. I thought, well, if my ambition is to get a university degree, I might as well get it in something I liked. And I, I did like the, the content of archaeology. 
so I then ultimately I got my BA in archaeology and then I went back into the, the non-academic world again and, and again I got good jobs and I made lots of money but uh, something was missing in my life so I remembered I remembered when I was an undergraduate student, I remember all the graduate students, they didn't seem to have any particular skill that, you know, that was outstanding. They just seemed to be really enjoying their life. And they just like, they, they seemed to really like it. And, you know, and I could, you know, you, you go to parties with them and they're just like normal people. And so this I thought, is really, this is really resonating with me, Bob. <laughs> so I, I, you know, so I just thought, well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll see if I can make a career out of archaeology. So then I thought, uh, okay, I'll do that. So I went back and uh, Simon Fraser University was my first choice. And uh, so I applied there and they accepted me. So I only got a master's degree and then I went out and I started my own CRM company. Small scale, just, just myself. And I would typically what I would do is hire members of the local First Nation to work with me when I was on a project. Where were you based when you were doing consulting? I was uh, in a few different places. Mostly my home base would, be, would have been in Metro Vancouver area, but I spent a lot of time up in the Kamloops area. I worked for a large number of different First Nations in the Southern interior. I would often work, uh, spend Monday to Fridays in the Southern interior and uh, come back to Metro Vancouver on the weekends. Get away from the rain for a while. Yes, yes. I love I love the southern interior. It was just like I, I could appreciate because I grew up mostly in the in Metro Vancouver. And when I got to the southern interior, especially during the winters, you know, I really appreciated the beautiful weather up there. It could be cold, but so much more blue sky. It is lovely. Yeah. Have you ever run a field school there, Bob? No, no. All my field schools have been in North Vancouver. And that was just a matter of convenience because I had to run my field schools without a budget. So all my field schools have been commuter field schools where the students got themselves to and from the site every day and responsible for their own, you know, meals and accommodation. And then I'm, I'm also really interested in learning a bit more about how it sounds like you were an early adopter of First Nations engagement with archaeology. It's something that we talk a lot about now. It's still uh, not required in consulting archaeology to the level it perhaps should be. But it sounds like that was that was kind of part of your informal business plan, part of your approach to consulting. Would, would that be a fair statement? Absolutely. But it was, wasn't something I ever thought about consciously. Right. It was just something that, that was just part of my nature that uh, I did that. And I've always, you know, since the very beginning, I've always thought of archaeology more as being a service to First Nations. And it reminds me that I mean, one time I'd already been working mostly for First Nations in the interior for a few years. And there was uh, a retired band chief that I used to work with quite a bit. So we knew each other quite well and we were already friends. And I remember we were doing survey one day and I said, I said to him, I said, Jerry, I, I don't know what it is, but I, I have so much work. And I think there's probably a lot better archaeologists than me. And yet they can't find work. And I'm just turning work down left and right. And it was all from First Nations. And without batting an eye, he just turned to me and he started laughing. He said, he said, Bob, it's so easy why you're getting so much work because First Nations trust you. The word is out there that you're, you're a good person to do archaeology with. And he said, so many archaeologists come up from the city and they pretend they're listening to us, but they're not really listening to us. He said, you have a reputation for actually listening to us and uh, that's why I was getting all the work so um, I took that as a compliment compliment but it wasn't anything that I 
ever consciously did. It was just part of my personality, I think, that I would just like listen. And I recognized that I was there to serve the First Nations primarily to see what they wanted. Then I would do what they asked me to do. And uh, so that's, that's how it worked with me. Yeah. I, I love that idea that archaeology is a service to First Nations because I don't think that that is an explicit guiding principle. I know you're talking about it. It wasn't explicit for you either, but in our in our kind of professional guidelines and, and so on, it's just not worded that way. We have wording uh, that supports that with like UNDRIP, for example, but yeah. that hasn't kind of ported over more locally, like in BC, though I, I know that, that that is a growing intention for many consulting archaeologists, which is which is great, which is wonderful. But it's really exciting to hear someone talking about it uh, in the past tense, as in not, not as in you did it and you're not doing it anymore, but as in like it's something that was foundational for you and your approach from early days. Yes, it absolutely was, for sure. Yeah. So I heard you also say that you sometimes get frustrated with systems and you respond to them. And did you ever experience that in the consulting world? Or did you feel that there, you know, that, that what you were bringing to the table, there was a space for it in the consulting model, kind of the approach that you were bringing? Or was there any early frustrations as you built, went into consulting or was it fairly smooth? I was going in blind, really. I decided to start my own company because I wanted to be in control, essentially. Mm. I'm, a, I'm a better boss than an employee, I think. So <laughs> when, when, when I first started my consulting work and I was doing um, impact assessments, I found a great deal of frustration because no one ever wanted me to find anything. I was working, uh, I was usually being subcontracted to environmental companies and I'd go out and I'd find stuff and I'd, I'd want to share that information, you know, like I found this really cool site or, you know, I found some rock art and, and nobody ever wanted to share my, nobody shared my enthusiasm. All they ever wanted to know was how much that was going to cost them and how long it would be for a delay. So I found that really frustrating, um, understandably so. But then I started working with First Nations uh, for half the money, but a hundred times the job satisfaction. Right. You know, and I'd come back at the end of a day, you know, when I was working with the First Nation and I'd be telling them I found, you know, a, a new village, unknown village site or a rock art site or something. And it would be like, OK, field trip. Let's all go gather tomorrow. And it was just like, you know, it was like really wonderful. So some of my best memories in all of archaeology come from when I was working, you know, with First Nation, with and for First Nations, just uh, because there was no frustration whatsoever. I just loved every minute I was working with First Nations. So I, have, I did find frustration, you know, when I wasn't working with First Nations, when I was doing impact assessments for corporations or development companies, but that just disappeared when I started working with First Nations. We find a similar, uh, <laughs> we find similar <laughs> satisfaction when we're working like directly with the descendants of the material that we're looking at, which we always say is, is so unusual and such a great thing about BC is, is the, the material that we're engaging with is like directly related to our First Nations team members standing beside us. Whereas, right. you know, I've worked in other places, um, Amanda's worked in other places where there's not that direct lineage. And so there's like this richness that we just, well, we love it. It almost seems wrong to charge the money when they're, you know, when they're the ones that are hiring us to do the work. And sometimes we don't. And well, yeah, often, often we don't much to our bookkeepers, like cringing, like, was this another pro bono project? <laughs> <laughs> We're like, well, you know, it has different kinds of returns. <laughs> we usually have at least one or two pro bonos a year. Mm -hmm. And they, and it really feels good too. Yeah. 
size. I don't know if it's the same now. When I when I was doing all my work with First Nations, the, the amount of money I could be paid was controlled by the federal government, which really wasn't very much money at all. But again, I got it was like what half the money I was making when I was doing my other consulting work. But just the job satisfaction was you know so so phenomenally you know satisfying that made up for it. For a few of the First Nations I used to work with as well, they wanted me to, to hire their First Nations members to train them to, in archaeology, which was very satisfying as well. Mm-hmm. It was one of those win-win situations where I could learn more about their culture, you know, by having them around. And we'd be going through looking for sites and then, you know, they'd, I'd be teaching them the archaeology field techniques as well. For kind of a recap for listeners, we've talked about this in previous episodes, but in, in BC, the way heritage is managed under the Heritage Conservation Act is, you know, if it's pre-1846, it's protected. And there's very few examples of things that are post-1846 that are protected under a Heritage Conservation Act. But interestingly, you've moved from consulting, which is, you know, largely concerned um, in BC with the pre-1846, working under HCA, and you've worked kind of, you've moved right into a different, different realm, looking at COVID, looking at historical archaeology, looking at skateboard parks, which is almost entirely post-1846. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It's all eight, post-1840. <laughs> <laughs> right. So how did you kind of make that bridge? Was it deliberate or is that just kind of where the current interests are? Well, I had uh, kind of a personal tragedy in my life uh, quite a while ago. My first wife passed away and I had an uh, infant son. So then it sort of caused me to, to give up my consulting work with First Nations. And then I was able to get a job you know teach more teaching focus which was more conducive at the time to like having to being a parent and but what happened was then i, I really started missing the field work mm. uh, and then i also remarried and had a blended family my, my new wife and i had a couple of kids and you know so now total we have six kids now and it was just like growing it wasn't really conducive to doing a lot of field work i don't I never really ask my wife i don't think she would be pleased if i had like just took <laughs> off all Monday to Friday, every weekend. So then I started just like focusing on all my teaching, which was full-time work, but I really started missing the field work. I missed it a lot. And like this teaching just wasn't quite enough for me. And being at at the time Capilano College, there was no means to actually get research funding or there wasn't set up for it. There was, there was, you know, we weren't able to get like grants or anything like that. And nobody did because we were just focused on teaching. So I started looking around and I started volunteering on a few projects or I'd go up. I remember uh, one of the keys for me was asked to go to consult on an archaeology project in Alaska because of my expertise at the time in Shelmid and stratigraphy and so then it sort of that was sort of a key to me that's oh I really love the field work I really love the field work so I came back and I said I got to get some field work going and you know in the academic area it's pretty easy to do field work while you're teaching because summers are usually free I decided to put uh, together a a one-year only archaeology field school and I had quite a bit of a uh, conversation with the university administration who said, you know, we, okay, you can do it, but there's no money. So don't ask us for any money. And then it was one time only. And they would only commit to the one field season. And so I, I did that. And it was easy to do if I kept it historic archaeology because no permits were required and right. there'd be radiocarbon dates and I did it locally close to Capilano University so it was easy access. Fortunately for me 
the dean who approved the one year only uh, notion, then he uh, left the university and I never told anybody it was only for one year. <laughs> <laughs> so then I kept doing it until 2019. Well, uh, so that was, uh, but it was, it was easier for me to do it in historic archaeology because it didn't require permits or any kind of uh, lab funds or anything like that. And, you know, in the beginning, what I, before there was any kind of requirements for consulting or permissions of First Nations, I, you know, I was keen on doing that anyway. So I sent letters um, at the time, you know, paper copies of letters to, uh, to the local First Nations and told them what I was doing and that I, I would not be, I wasn't looking for any First Nation sites. And if I did find some, I'd stop immediately and inform them. After the first field season, I was just recording. I was teaching my students all survey work because I didn't really even have any excavation equipment. And so we do a few little test excavations, but it was all Euro Canadian remains. And after one season of that, I got kind of tired of that, uh, just residential structures that were left in the forest. And so then I started looking for something different. And then I tried to do a logging camp. And then I essentially, in, in a sense, metaphorically, I struck gold by finding evidence of Japanese in the forest where I was working. And that just turned into a, a whole phenomenal uh, research strand because nobody really knew Japanese were in the, the Seymour Valley where I was working. And, and like, I don't want to just brush over this because it's gotten a tremendous amount of coverage in media internationally as well. I was reading uh, stories, you know, not only locally, but also from Japan. Why do you think it's resonating with people so much? And can you kind of like speak a little bit more to kind of the importance of that work? I'm amazed with the amount of press it got, but essentially it's funny because I was telling the same basic story since 2004 <laughs> and all of a sudden I'm telling the same basic story in 2019 and all of a sudden the international media were all over it. I, I suspect that the world had changed. I hadn't changed. The research hadn't changed. I think the world changed. I started finding these sites with evidence of Japanese occupation and they dated to prior to World War II. For those not aware, people of Japanese descent were removed from the coastal areas of British Columbia and most and the west coast of the United States as well. Within 100 miles, they were uh, if they didn't go voluntarily, they were put in camps in the interior beginning in 1942. So the sites that I've excavated in the Seymour Valley were pre-World War II. And one of them seemed really interesting in the sense that it appears to have started as a logging camp, but the logging really petered out in the valley in the 1920s. So I have evidence that after the site's use as a logging camp, it be began to be used as a residential camp um, for people of Japanese descent. And they made it what I refer to as a little oasis of Japanese culture, where I have a, be able to identify an area that was probably a small shrine. I have a Japanese bathhouse. There's gardens, evidence of at least a dozen small cabins and houses. There seems to be that they were living a very traditional Japanese lifestyle. And so I had that pretty much figured out in 2004. And in subsequent years, I take my students back in on their annual field schools and we wouldn't typically spend the whole field school there, but anywhere between like one, one week and, and seven weeks typically would be spending at that particular site. And it was just simply adding to the data that we already had. So the story didn't change very much. It just had more data. And then for some reason, in 2019, it just blew up. I knew that there was going to be my last field season, at least for a while in 2019. 
So I invited uh, a journalist from the North Shore News up, not because I wanted a story, it's just because the guy had covered you know, quite a few of my stories before and he always expressed interest in getting to the site, but we just couldn't make it work logistically. So I, I, I called him and I said, look, you know, we're, clo we're closing down the, pro the project and there's only a couple days left and I'm not looking for a story, but you know, just as a courtesy, you know, you want to come up. And he did. On his own, he decided to write a story about the entire project. It was a really good story. He won an award as the best story in historical reporting for the British Columbia and Yukon that year. And then Gloria Makarenko from uh, CBC Radio happened to be reading it. And she called me up and said, that's really interesting. Can you come in for an interview? I think there's greater interest in the North Shore. So I said, sure. So I went down in studio. And then she said, we don't usually have much to do with the uh, news division, but your story is really interesting. Can you send me some photos and I'll turn it over to the news division? And I did that, and then a couple of days later, it appeared on their digital platforms, which I guess goes out all over the world. And within a few days, I was getting inundated with interview requests. I mean, I was on BBC Radio out of London, and there were it was amazing. You know, it was like their host it kept saying like how fantastic this was, and I'm going like you know like you live like in England where there's Stonehenge and Roman ruins and Viking, and he found he found this little Japanese camp in in uh, you know North Vancouver so interesting, and then it it just spread. Then I got a journalist from a Japanese newspaper came out and spent a day with me, and then people started sending me copies of articles printed in a number of different languages. I think. If I could guess what was going on there, I'm thinking it's just the time of Trump in the U.S. and around the world, because typically a journalist would ask me why why I think that the, the Japanese would continue to live in essentially a secret camp that nobody knew about in the forest. And I said, well, there's a lot of racism in British Columbia. Um, there was race riots, you know, in the early 1900s. Japanese embassy was actually encouraging people of Japanese descent to assimilate. So I think this was a way for people who wanted to maintain the Japanese culture without being threatened in some way. This was their choice. They chose to live in the, in the forest and make their own little community. I've talked to a number of people who were also living in the general area, uh, people of European descent, and they had no recollection of the Japanese there at all. So I think they pretty much kept to themselves. So I think the world just became much more cognizant of racism and the impacts of that. I think that's what made it interesting. I think I think you're right. It's the timing. I, I often tell my students that it was no accident that we started looking into women's role in archaeology in like the 1960s, and that uh, civil rights archaeology or you know um, African American archaeology was always a thing. African Americans were there before, but we only started looking at them when it became like personally relevant. Right. So right. it's kind of about that modern modern lens, and I love right. his I love historical archaeology. That's what uh, like my PhD research is about historical archaeology, yeah. and this is really capturing one of the reasons why because you can get these really distinct uh, and yet discrete chunks of time, like twenty years, nineteen twenties to nineteen forty two, that can't always be captured um, in the in deeper history. It's really fascinating, Bob. Like we have a friend here up in the terrace area. He's with the Niskalisim's government. And he was telling me about how somebody has found a Japanese camp near King Kolith. We were trying to get out there on a boat to go and see it because I had no idea it was there. 
and also the idea of historical archaeology in BC, like when we talk about that, it's such a specific thing, um, but it is a more general term. So when we talk in BC about historical archaeology, because of our heritage legislation, we're talking post-1840. 46 material, which is fairly ambiguous because it's it's related to the signing of the Oregon Treaty. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of this idea of this line in the sand that before that is uh, this idea of like strictly indigenous material culture from an archaeological perspective. And then after 1846 is where we get the larger volume of uh, non-indigenous and settler material. Yeah. But if those are that's so specific to BC that's not the way it's experienced in like so many other places <laughs> yeah. I would, do you have any nor does it make any sense no nor does it make a single uh bit of sense so so what's the future for this I, I guess I know you said that 2019 was your last season but do you have any like Japanese collaborators if you have if you have collaborators have they expressed an interest for what they would like to see happen or where, where is it sitting now Japanese community is pretty happy with what I've done. And when I, I took great satisfaction with convincing Metro Vancouver because where I work is specifically my study area is the Lower Seymour Conservation Reserve in North Vancouver. It's controlled by the D Metro Vancouver District. And when I started working there, they just wanted to ensure that they would own the artifacts. You know, I'm, I'm fine with that because I wouldn't know what to do with them anyways, you know, in the long term. So as the project started winding down and I had the, the curators and other staff from both the Nikkei National Museum and the North Van Museum, and they came and they collected artifacts. And both of them have made, you know, since made exhibits with them on display. And I, I get great satisfaction with that because, you know, they're sort of going home in a sense. So the Nikkei Museum, one of the curators there, you know, said, to, to me, I, I probably not going to remember it exactly right, but these artifacts had been lost once through the process of internment and internment. It would be like a real shame if they're lost again. So yes, we will take them. Similarly, with the North Vancouver Museum, it's led them to do more of a more research into the Asian communities on the North Shore. Um, so they both have displays up now, and I'm, I take a great deal of satisfaction with that. And all my pro project records will end up in the North Vancouver um, archives. I also have a book on the archaeology of BC in the works, and uh, it's going to be quite unlike, I think, anything that's out there now. Okay, and, and it's going to be, you know, one of the things is being, I'm working uh, as I have Karen Thomas from the Tsleil-Waututh Nation. She's an archaeologist working with them, and she's uh, come aboard as a co-author with me. So we're nearing completion on this. And it's going to be, you know, I'm certainly a lot of my own input into that, including, you know, a chapter on historic archaeology and including a chapter on the archaeology of the contemporary world. But mostly it'll be focused on the Indigenous past. And of course, like later this week, I'll be working on a section which sort of bridges what we were just talking about a few minutes ago about that arbitrary divide. And I, I'm going to have, I think, a fairly lengthy section on um, indigenous peoples in the historic period, you know, including it wasn't by design, but now it, of course, it'll be including, you know, the unmarked burial grounds, but all sorts, of, but all sorts of other archaeological research on the on indigenous uh, peoples of British Columbia during the historic period. Because it seems to be, you know, undervalued. I think, I think there's some really interesting research there about uh, 
indigenous peoples, you know, living at the same time, you know, as settlers. Even, for example, in the, in the Seymour Valley, Tsleil-Waututh Nation, for example, would have been there, right? But now the, all their evidence, you know, they were there too. Like, it's not like they just disappeared when people came in to go logging. It's, it's like, that's their traditional territory and they would have been doing all sorts of activities in there and you know most of that stuff is now archaeologically invisible because the area has been logged and there's been a dam and there's been so much activity but you know one of the things I'll be trying to do is just to, to bring in that notion that yeah the, the, the first nations have been active during the historic period and Absolutely. in addition to in, in addition to like the settlers and the logging and the fishing and the ranching, you know, it's an important part of the last few hundred years here. That idea of entanglement, I think also that that was something that Brian Pegg was looking at uh, with his field school with Boston Bar, I think. Yeah. Somewhere in the Fraser Canyon. <laughs> yeah. You obviously seek additional value. Maybe you don't set out to do that, but I think you can see kind of the power of archaeology. You were talking about uh, where you would get value as a consultant working with First Nations. And it sounds like, um, you know, teaching and public education, perhaps that's something that you experience as well, kind of that additional joy. And I wondered, how did your students get involved with your um, Seymour Valley work? So I agreed to take 15 students by myself, you know, which, you know, was really high for archaeology field schools, you know, because I, I remember one time when the SFU field school came by for a visit, you know, with all the staff and professors and teaching assistants, they had a ratio of about, you know, one instructor for every three students. And here I was teaching 15 by myself. But, but, but what the university had to give was the ability to me to choose the students. And it was a real thrill for them and for me to go into the field every summer and work. And many of them, they just, they loved archaeology. So they would continue on in archaeology. Uh, many of them have gone on to make careers in archaeology. Uh, many of them just continued to volunteer on the, on the project, either like coming back to assist with the excavations and act as, you know, unofficial teaching assistants. And uh, many of them loved uh, doing the public education components of the, of the project. It's been very rewarding for me. And uh, I used to promote it, you know, to students, it's sort of like a sampler in archaeology, it's sort of like, you know, it's a commuter field school. So if you find this, that you like, you like it, and then, you know, then, I, then I'd recommend that you go on and take another field school from UBC or SFU or elsewhere, you know, because those are more intense, and there are more credits. And a lot of them have done that. So I, I don't really have a count, but there's many of my former students who are, you know, in the field now um, with their own companies. So I take a lot of satisfaction with that. I have a lot of contact. I kept in contact with a lot of my students from the field school. I don't know if that answered your question or not. But I think it does. Yeah, I, I think it does. I, I, I have just seen you um, advocating for students and trying to kind of lift up and showcase their efforts. And yeah. I think it's important to kind of it's not always done in academia. And it's such a critically important part. And so I wanted to make sure that it was captured as well. Yeah, I just love working with students. I, I also, I, public education is, is, you know, my thing as well. So I've given like well over like 100 public pro, program, public exhibitions or lectures or something just to deal with this one project. It's funny because over the last few months, I've had a couple of situations. Some of the work I, I did like over 30 years ago, I've been requested for copies of it now. And I just kind of find that funny. It was mostly the work I was doing, you know, early in my career with First Nations. And, you know, I always work with the understanding that I wouldn't, that, that work was for the First Nations and nobody else, except maybe their lawyers that, you know, some of the work I was doing was in preparation for court cases. 
And so my work, I used to often think that some of the best work I ever did, did, you know, like reports of, you know, hundreds of pages was never read by anybody. And I said, well, that's just the, that's just the way it is that, you know, there's that confidentiality and the first nation, the first nations I worked with never wanted me to, to get a permit from the government. So I didn't. So there's no report on file with the government, but over the last few months, I've had a few requests from uh, different First Nations and some different archeologists as well. And it's sort of like, wow, like 30 years later, people are asking to see what I did in the uh, 1980s. I thought that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think you were ahead of your time. <laughs> and it's, well, it's it's nice though that it's, it's still being captured, right? And so it, it's being requested and it's ultimately winding up probably where you wanted it to wind up. It um, is, it is. The like, beginning, and so that's got to feel pretty great. It is, it's like, you know, the, one that just comes to mind, for example, came in like a, a month or so ago and it was the First Nation, knew I did work for them, but they couldn't locate the copy, right? So they, you know, here you go, right? Of course, I also find it funny because uh, these multiple requests I've been getting, they're all asking me just to send them a digital copy. And I got to tell them, you know, this was written like in a typewriter. This was a long time ago. And uh, but they're okay with that. And I wanted to touch base on a tweet that you posted uh, recently where you say every professor of archaeology and anthropology I ever took a course from was a white male of European descent. In my entire university education I only had two female profs and you've been fighting it internally ever since and you also highlight that you wish you had sought out more black indigenous people of color profs elsewhere and perhaps even have chosen another university at least during your grad student days. I wonder if you could kind of build upon that because it's so, it, what's really interesting is, you know, this is a current view, but you're, you're reflecting upon the past. Like, would you have done differently? And, and what do you, like, what's changed? And why, and why do you care? <laughs> I, I, you know, for my entire life, I've been, I've been recognizing the bias that I have. You know, I think when I was younger and I was a student, even though I recognized the bias, I didn't have that wherewithal to address it properly and uh, I didn't really know what to do I, I, and I guess it just so even when I'm taking courses and I, I recognize wow these are all like you know white guys and I you know I recognize that bias and this was a long time ago I was teaching and I, I didn't I just sort of put it to the side and then I don't really know if there's a key moment. I just remember recognizing it, even as I was an undergraduate student, that I'm probably not getting a very balanced view. But at that time, it was you know it's quite a while ago. I'm talking like in in the 1980s, there wasn't very many non-white archaeologists around. Um, there was none I could have taken a course from if I wanted to stay at Simon Fraser University. And you know, in retrospect. You know, I, but I was naive. I didn't really know what was going on. I'm a first generation university student, so I didn't even have any family or none of my friends were going to university. So I really didn't even have anybody to talk with about it. Um, I wouldn't even know how to bring up the conversation. It wasn't even a, a factor. I couldn't even, you know, my friends who were other students were mostly similar to me. So we didn't even know the questions to ask. So I'm just always very cognizant of the bias that I have. And I don't recall exactly what spurred that initial tweet. Oh. I think it was came, I came out of that. I remember now I've had a follow-up tweet on that. It came out of the context of a discussion I just had in my classroom, you know, minutes earlier when I was 
somehow in response to a question I talked I was talking about uh, bias women particularly at that that time with you know women were being unrepresented unrepresented in you know particular topics and how I look forward to hearing the results of more women doing research in archaeology and paleoanthropology but yeah it's something I, I fought with internally so I just try to be explicit with it that yeah I'm a I'm a you know white guy of European descent, and I was taught by a bunch of white guys of European descent, and I recognize that bias, and I try to deal with it, both in terms of you know, and I, I picked it up that you know in university that there was that theoretical bias, and there was you know so I was really cognizant of that, and who was teaching me and what they thought, because hardly anybody's ever explicit in it, and I try to be explicit in everything I can. And so I just like, I just tried to address it. I try to address it with all my students. I try to make students aware that there is this bias and um, how the archaeology is still, you know, we're dominated by, by the, the male perspective primarily. And I'm always talking about how exciting it is for me to, to work with uh, women archaeologists and read their research. And I just find that so stimulating and, you know, their discussion or they're bringing up topics that I never even would have thought of and just like how they approach um, topics. I think, I think it's, I think it's the way forward. And I think um, too many, speaking as a, a white woman in archaeology, a settler archaeologist, I think that too many um, white male anthropologists have to have any kind of power pride from their cold dead hands. And so it's quite refreshing uh, to hear, to hear someone in a power position, in a leadership position who is willing uh, to, to share and to create a legacy, a really positive legacy that can be passed on. Um, I think I think it's only positive, but have you ever gotten any uh, backlashes to this approach? No, no. But, you know, I'm kind of solitary over by myself. I'm the only archaeologist typically who works at a time. You know, whenever I'm, I, whenever I'm on campus, whenever I'm, I'm teaching term, like I'm the only archaeologist. So I don't have a lot of other archaeologists to, to talk with on a, on a regular basis. But I've I've never had any negative pushback at all. So what I can, what I do now, as much as I can, because I've I've been writing books now for for quite a while. I, I try to clear as much time um, by taking on the, the more of the mundane tasks dealing with publishers. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of st- emails go back and forth with e- with uh, editors, for example, um, from acquisition editors, production editors, to copy editors. So I try to clear the plate of that, you know, for example, when I'm working with uh, Stacy or, or, or Karen or Laura, because that's kind of relatively easy for me. I want them to focus, you know, on the content um, while copying them on material so that they can get a sense you know, that what it really is involved in writing a book. I kind of look at myself as a little bit of a mentor uh, for people who want it. I've never, you know, one of the most frequent things I do when I'm, you know, communicating with my co-authors or, pe- or, or other people I'm collaborating with is that don't, don't, don't do this if you don't want to. Don't let me, you know, um, don't let me hold any power over you because I just, I would feel horrible if anybody ever felt that. I just try to make things easier for people. Can you tell us what your thoughts are on the future of our discipline in archaeology and how you like your work to be relevant to to all of us who are oh. I guess oh, what a question sounds like you have you're a mentor to many so <laughs> I you know one of the most frustrating things I've ever had to deal with is the fact that people don't appreciate the value of archaeology you know I've been talking about that in my classes especially you know for 20 years or more about how we have so much to offer 
but people tend not to want to listen, um, whether it's governments or, or the public. I have great hopes that the social value, particularly of archaeology, will come to the fore and be more acknowledged how we can, uh, archaeology can work, you know, towards social justice, which I'm a big fan of. I hope that people will appreciate that. And I, I, I sense that it's going that way. And I also hope that people recognize how archaeology, you know, is political. Almost everything we do from, you know, even requiring permits it has political connotations to it. Um, so I, I hope that people can just recognize the value of what we have to offer, uh, particularly regarding social justice. That, in a nutshell, is where I hope it goes, and I think it's going, hopefully. Yeah. We think it's going there, too. We just think it's going there at a snail's pace. It's going quite, quite slowly. Yeah. I was just having this conversation with somebody. It wasn't an archaeologist in the hallway at uh, Capline University the other day. And I, and I forget what the exact question was, but I just like, I remember my response was, I'm just so tired of rationalizing archaeology. <laughs> you know, it's just like, I'm just tired of telling people how important archaeology is, um, because I, it, it is important. And uh, I just wish more people would appreciate it. I think especially in British Columbia, um, you know, where it's still very much the settler mentality um, and people just have no appreciation or care about the Indigenous past. They still think, you know, that, you know, all the really good stuff comes from Central America or, you know, Egypt or Europe. And I find that very frustrating, um, you know, knowing that heritage take, tends to be taken much more seriously elsewhere in the world. Um, so that's a frustration of mine. Probably changing the world one tweet at a time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just like want to get people more appreciative of the indigenous past in British Columbia. And, you know, I, I like the historic stuff. Too. I like my historic archaeology too, but I think the indigenous stuff tends to be more important. Um, one of the things I find with doing my historic archaeology is that I can provide a balance to a lot of the historians. A lot of the historians. You know, I, I, there's some very good ones, but there's also some bad ones. <laughs> they provide such an odd perception about how the world really works. I remember, you know, when I was working on my Seymour Valley archaeology project doing historic archaeology, I remember at a big public meeting. It was a stakeholders meeting for people involved with heritage. And a professional historian came right out and said that there is no value in archaeology. And he said, if, at best, archaeologists would only dig where historians tell them to dig. You know, so I'm doing my best to counter that as well. I think we have so much more to talk about. We we think that the public education piece and, you know, using Twitter and pointing out the problems and talking about the struggles that we believe that other archaeologists are having, we want to talk about that on this podcast and the hopes it can just improve the practice for everyone. Because it is important, it is relevant, but it does have to modernize in order to stay relevant. Right. Um, and that's kind of the critical piece, but we're going to have to bring you back, Bob, and talk about this. <laughs> talk about this more. Glad to come back. That would be terrific. We loved having you here. Thank you ever so much. You have a, a lot going on. Um, we we really admire the work that you're doing, and thank you so much for making time to chat with us about it. Yeah, thank you. It was it was really a pleasure. Thank you for all those kind words. <laughs> it, was my, it was my pleasure. Hey folks, thanks for listening to this episode of Dig This. If you have any questions or there's something you'd like us to dig into, reach out online. You can find and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dig This Pod. If you dig us, leave us a review and tune in next week for a new episode.